0: Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 4. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Munro, a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England, and I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we will be discussing topics that can often spark debate or controversy. And one very dividing topic, which we will be discussing today is Med Twitter, a force for good or a force for evil. The hashtag Med Twitter consists of an online community of researchers, health practitioners, and students who have created an open source, decentralized forum for information sharing, medical education, and professional networking hashtag med twitter also provides a space for publications to be shared and promoted while many will credit MedTwitter with giving a voice to clinicians it also comes with challenges potentials for abuse and the spread of misinformation here to discuss this with us today we have johnny gookian or as some may know him at johnny gooks who is a regular on med twitter and therefore qualified to talk with experience about the platform at time of recording, Johnny, you have seven and a half thousand followers, which is definitely more than me, and have tweeted 26 and a half thousand times. But for those not familiar with Med Twitter or yourself, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: 20,000 tweets, that's, a, that's, I don't know if that's sad or an, you know, an achievement really, but um, th- thank you for, th- that's a unique introduction. Um, I'm Johnny, uh, I'm a dermatology reg in, in Leeds, uh, I'm also the uh, co-chair of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees Committee and Director for Social Media and Communications at ASME, which is the Association for the Study of Medical Education.
0: Thank you, Johnny, and I can't wait to hear some things you have to say. Um, I'm also joined by the other panelists today, so we've got Flo and Declan. Both of you are hospital doctors. Declan, you were a familiar face, or should I say, voice on our student podcast. Even um, now, graduated to doctor informed. Uh, Declan, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Yeah, hi everyone. Um, I'm Declan. I'm an academic medical fellow. ST2 in ophthalmology at the moment up in Newcastle. I've probably got about 60 tweets to my uh, portfolio, I imagine, so not quite, as, <laughs> not quite as experienced as Johnny, but hopefully I'll be able to contribute somewhat. <laughs>
0: non-prolific tweeters are welcome too um which brings me to flow flow it's lovely to have you on the podcast would you like to refresh our listeners memory about yourself
3: yeah hi everyone i'm flow i'm a medical registrar uh, based in london and i'm currently um, a sustainability fellow based at the bmj for this year and i similarly probably have about 60 tweets for that.
0: lovely to have you both on those of you who have listened to the first few episodes in our new series, you'll know that we start by talking about what people are talking about on the wards, what has been in the news recently. Has anyone seen anything they want to discuss this week? And I am looking at Johnny for this one because I noticed that you have been involved in a number of discussions about a topic that I think has been bubbling under the surface for a while. Um, and this is about the role of the um, allied health professionals so nurses and PAs and whether people feel like that this is displacing the roles of doctors what do you think about that
1: Oh, uh, is this going to get me cancelled? Um, I, I would, I would say that before I before I give my opinions on this, that these are my opinions and not the opinions of of any organisation that I'm involved with. Before I do get cancelled, I think this is this is about more than just the roles of PAs and allied health professionals. There is a lot of background to this that um, if anyone's got a bit of time and wants to feel a little bit give a bit of their soul away, just go on to Reddit and have a little read in the Junior Doctor UK forum about some of the history around um, PAs in America. But essentially, um, physician associates or assistants initially came up in the, in the US some time ago, I think over a decade ago, um, and have been quite successful from, from, in terms of their proliferation of the role. They've been more recent in uh, in the UK and there's currently movement to get regulation for, for, for PAs with the GMC and that's stalled recently. Now th- what you're referring to are, are, are a few tweets that uh, went, went out this week about the role of PAs taking away um, education opportunities from junior doctors and I would start off by saying that I have every sympathy for the junior doctors that, that are experiencing this, it is not okay, um, and you know training should be training, and trainers have a have a responsibility to train junior doctors first because it's a training program. However, I don't necessarily think this is all just based on these few isolated cases of of, of PAs and allied health professionals coming to take away our training I, I i think there's there's more to it than that i think this there's so much context and this ties a lot into the issue of pay restoration um and the doctor's vote movement um and everything that comes with that and i think a lot of it, t- it comes down back down to status about mm. doctors wanting to be at top of the tree mm. and i know that not, not, not everyone's going to agree with that but from an evidence point of view, you don't think there's really there's, there's no there's no published studies, um, or any quantification or even qu- uh, quality study of um, PAs contributing in the UK at least um, to taking away education opportunities from trainees. And I've into a bit of a hefty discussion about allied health professionals more widely having a role within medical education. Mm. And there was a, a there was someone on Twitter who was basically saying that. And a lot of people agreeing with him, so it wasn't just this person saying that they wanted their medical education from a, someone who had a medical education, which, quite frankly, is hokum um, <laughs> and um, not based on any evidence whatsoever and fundamentally ignorant of decades of, of medical education and wider health professions, education scholarship. So I think we have a duty to do two things. We have a duty to gather evidence on this to see if this is truly happening in terms of education opportunities being, being affected by new roles and a d- diversified workforce and two i think that we have to ensure that the root causes of it, of any possible loss training are being addressed i.e and i think, think probably is the main issue which is rotations mm. so the, the thinking is is that pas and other like acps for example are more likely to be trained because consultants etc are more incentivized to train mm. these people because they're sticking around so, um, is the rotational format to training a an appropriate way to, to do things is it evidence based no, it's a legacy um so should we should we, we be look at, looking at that? So, I think this is a really big issue that is much less simple than social media would let you think, and I would just kind of tie this up in an epo with the fact that I get upset and quite disturbed by some of the rhetoric around um p a s because it's it seems to be a Rather than having reasoned discussions about a, a, a completely different profession to us, who are there to help, who are designed to help us, um, and as part of the MDT. There's a lot of othering happening. Mm. So PA's are 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 are, are being, It's it's kind of like in politics saying immigrants are coming to take our jobs. Mm. Mm. the PA seen and ACPs have been seen to be an other, which is a very popular distraction from issues which actually matter so much more than this. Mm. Sorry, that was a long. That was a long rant.
0: No, I think that that you've summarised that really, really nicely, and I yeah, I applaud you for that. I want to pick up on something that you said there about. Part of this being about doctors and status and people feeling that their status has been eroded. And Declan, I saw you nodding along there. What, what do you think about that?
2: I mean, I think there's lots of points to pick up there, isn't there? Um, I'm sure there is a component of status. You know, it's a, it's a historical thing. And I think when people are applying to medical school, there is a degree of, of status there. For me personally, no. Um, but I would disagree with a couple of the things that, that Johnny said. I think particularly around... Um, you know, PAs, they're here to take our jobs. A couple of years ago, when I was doing the BMJ scholarship, I did actually have an interview with the head of physician associates. They don't have a Royal College. I can't remember what the actual official term is. And it was about kind of what is the role of a, um, a PA. And I guess from my personal experience, I did not feel like the role of a PA, which I guess the role is advertised as is what's actually practical in... The places that I worked for PAs were. Um, a key example being, you know, the, the intention was to um, provide more opportunities for education, for ranging from F1s to registrars, um, to free up some of their time doing you know, mundane ward-based work so that they can go to clinic, go to extra surgeries, blah blah blah. In the trust that I worked, PAs didn't seem to be used in that capacity whatsoever. In fact, really, were only present in emergency departments, basically to fill to fill gaps, which I guess isn't achieving what the role is. I think, and I think that that frustrated a lot of doctors again because you know you'd go onto the wards and have to do all of these mundane things. Yet there's lots of phys- physician associates who are almost placed in areas where they're not achieving what they were set out to achieve so i think that that is a key frustration that people feel i mean and then you can go along with getting paid more than xyz despite not having the capacity to do xyz which i think again is is, is another thing that frustrate that frustrates doctors i don't know what johnny's opinion on that is I, so i i him so shaking his head and I, i'm very happy to to be uh, critiqued
1: um, I, un- I understand that the whole, the whole PA idea hasn't been delivered perfectly, and that we are all at the whims of per workforce planning and per training. But I think that these issues are going after PAs, which I obviously that's not what you are doing, but a lot of people online do. Isn't the solution to that the solution is going back to those who are delivering training and those who are designing the you know doing the workforce planning? That that's where the failure lies. I from a from a practical delivery point of view, I, I I often think that there's there's often lots of PAs because all of these things come from different pots of money. So training comes from one pot of money, which is formed directly from the government and tightly regulated over many years, and they just won't create numbers. The answer to all these problems are creating more training numbers, by the way. But then PAs will come from a different pot of money, and often because that's a new and kind of sexier idea and often has specific people championing that idea, but might be more readily available. So they'll get some more PAs in to help out that's not the fault of PAs. It's it's delivery. And uh, it's frustrating because somebody re- re- t- uh, tweeted about an initial kind of framing document for what the purpose of PAs was supposed to be back in, um, I think, maybe around 2010 or, or just after, towards their own regulation. And I'm really annoyed because I didn't read it in depth bec- um, because I was doing other things, but I seem to recall that it wasn't about freeing up training for, for early career ed- uh, um, doctors. It was about you know, as with other roles like nursing nursing, helping the MDT and contributing to patient care. So I think there's a little bit of a fallacy out there that they're there to help us. They're not. They're there to help patients. And in turn one of the one of the political arguments of it is it's a, an educational argument and delivery argument arguments but supposed to be that they will help us. No. Um that's one thing. Now, the the reason I was shaking my head slightly um, is more just a, like a personal thing. And I, I know there's big camps in this. I, I know um, there's a lot of debate about it on social media, but the comparing different professions to each other in terms of pay just seems to be, I, I don't think there's, there's much to that. I think all it achieves is riling up doctors. Um, it doesn't achieve anything. Um, there's, there's often no way really to compare. I know why PA's do it, but it's kind of well. I know why we do it with PA's, but I think things have expanded. I went onto Reddit last night, and the people were comparing a scaffolders' wage to doctors' wage, and it's like, when do you stop? It's a completely different. Ind- that's that's a completely different industry. Um, we just we like comparison because we're medics, and we like ranking each other, and we like comparing to each other. I just I just think I just think that if we believe in pay restoration, which I do, and and lots of people do, we should focus on that and we should focus on our, our, our own pay. We don't need to compare to other people because I think actually, from me speaking to people on the ground, on the wards and, and uh, in clinic, etc., more doctors are being turned off by that than mm. than are being... Be- on social media it plays well because it gets lots of likes from all the anonymous accounts, but in the real world, um, a lot of people just aren't a fan of us saying, oh I feel like oh I should be paid more than you because again it kind of comes back to that othering side of things Mm. you know I I get why people do it and it it frustrates me too that I'm not paid as as much as people were however many years ago but in my personal opinion I'm not a part of any BMA organization my organizations are all about education this is a personal view it doesn't it doesn't work with me
0: One of the other things that um, was kind of linked to this series of tweets was somebody had put forward the idea of saying, "Well, you know, we've got PAS and AHPS to do the job of F ones, F twos, so maybe we should all just come out of university and then just go straight into a specialty training program." And Florence, as a medical registrar, I was interested in in your view on this, whether you could have finished final year of med school and just popped into a kind of st1 role as a med reg like what do you do do you think there's value in f1 and two or do you think that's something we've just created
3: i mean people are terrified enough of being the med reg when you've like gone through the training before it like the
0: thought (laughs) of doing it straight from medical school is just
3: i mean it's laughable but it is like yes there's definitely value in f1 and f2 and i like i when i think about this before like there's so much value in the fact that that we that this UK system where we do experience different specialties and like it's really easy to be like oh other people do it some differently somewhere else therefore that must be the right way to do it but actually there's loads of good things about the way that we've set up our, our health system that like we should be proud of or you know that we should want to keep and and you know the fact that like I've had experience of working in as an ED, SHO and general practice, I think it's really benefited me. Um, I think there is something about the fact though, that there is lots of stuff we get to as F1s, F2s that it's just, I mean, there's just something about very inefficient about the fact that you put, you constantly put yourself in a new job every four months. Mm. And, you know, like if I think of by the end of F1, what made me a good F1, like some of it was about, you know, that was clinical learning and like, prioritization and so on but partly it was the fact that like I knew where if I needed an MRI for one of my patients I knew where the guy that booked the MRIs was I knew his name and like I could go you know and that you just it was you're way more efficient after those 11 months and I think there's something about having some somebody who's a bit more permanent on the on a ward or in a hospital that has that knowledge that um that you know isn't necessarily part of your clinical training yes being able to explain to the radiologist why you need the MRI fine but like the real kind of just knowing how these like unique systems in every single different hospital though completely different works and expecting that that to be the main job of the F1s I'm not sure that that um I think there, there's different defin- there's different things we could think about or different solutions to those problems but sticking everyone in as a med reg on day one at <laughs> medical school I was I'm gonna steal this I, I was kind of briefly chatting to my boyfriend about this and he was said that this quote comes from somebody else that for every complex problem there's a simple solution and it's normally wrong um so <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of summarizes that take on this
0: yeah I mean I think I, I definitely peaked at F1 because I love <laughs> oh, admin <so> <laughs> I love admin and I you know it's not sexy to talk about the fact that problem solving is not always about the clinical medicine that we do. Problem solving a lot for me as a F1 and FT was exactly what you said, like working out who will make something happen if you need yeah. something to happen.
3: the time I had to find cling film because somebody wanted to ultrasound somebody's legs that like, and I thought, okay, where in the hospital do I find cling film? And that was like an hour of my day, um, which is in recess. <laughs> like,
4: oh, that's, that's I mean.
0: yeah. I mean... The, the inception of Doctor Informed as a name for this podcast actually came from the fact that I was once called um, from a, a Jerry's ward, can you believe that I had to do that job, um, and they were were really, really stressed because a, a patient had smuggled a parakeet into the hospital in their wash bag, and all that was written in the notes was just parakeet smuggled in wash bag, Doctor Informed, and suddenly you realise that like actually everything is kind of your problem and you have to solve it so i think the problem solving stuff is not it's not super sexy it's not always clinical but um you know it is something that we all need to learn how to do um i i feel like we could talk all day about this but i am keen to move on to the second um The second item that I've seen floating around this week and it sparked a lot of controversy in the coffee room in my hospital last week. And it was this idea of Rishi Sunak's about charging people who miss their appointments an appointment missed fine. And now this has been shelved and it's not going to be rolled out. It was in Rishi Sunak's um, original uh, sort of campaign manifesto. Any thoughts of any like? What are your initial feelings about that? As a as you know, Florence shaking her head, would it, you're a you're a no for this idea. <laughs> Such a bad idea. This just. I mean, there's just so many practical
3: reasons why this is a really bad idea. Like, why do people miss their hospital appointments? It's because half the time we don't tell people about their hospital appointments because <laughs> stuff goes wrong somewhere in the system and like we text a number that's actually their like auntie's number from ten years ago. And then, you know, who misses and then there's a big inequalities thing, who misses hospital appointments? It's people who can't take time off work, whose kid gets sick, who can't have some emergency payment, so they can't pay for the bus. You know, bad from that point of view. And then I think there's another argument against it, which is interesting which I've sort of half remembered the study although it came up again this week which is the one from I think it's from Israel where they had a um, nursery school where pati- where parents were always picking up their kids late so they were like well what we need to do is start finding parents for whenever they pick up their children late so because you know it's costing us money to stay open bloody really well and actually what they found is after they started finding parents that more parents picked up their children late because suddenly rather than seeing it as like the social pressure that, oh, I can't, I need to rush and pick up my child because, you know, the nurse is going to stay open. They're like, oh, well, now we're paid for it already. Um, So I don't know, maybe that from a mm. kind of behavioural point of view, would it even work as
0: mm. well? Do you think there are any arguments for it? Does anybody here feel that there would be an argument for doing
3: this? I, I think
2: there's an issue, isn't there? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say I would support fining people. I think that's, you know, I, I would, I, I just think that's an ineffective way to deal with the problem. But there's clearly a problem, you know, like, for example, my diabetic clinic that I would do, um, I would have about a 50% DNA rate, which is crazy, and there's an absolute massive waste of resource. So there's clearly a massive problem, I mean, this was about GPs, and that's even more complex their system, I have no idea how GP practices work, they're all different. Blah blah blah, but there does need to be a solution to the problem, I think, and finding clearly isn't it. I think what you commented on about, you know, the reasons for why, as in they tend to not even be, get, you got the wrong phone number or you send the letter out and the, the wrong address. You would need to develop a, a really robust system to be able to justify anything like that. But there is clearly a problem that clearly needs to be resolved and i have absolutely no idea how <laughs> but i can i can understand the basis for it
1: i think you should employ someone to sit and phone everyone before they go to the clinic or before they go to the gp just to say yeah. you're still coming you're still coming um and that that, that would work because um I'm, I'm like you in in my dermatology clinic uh, particularly during um after the first covid wave i was getting sixty fifty sixty 50 60 percent dna rates um and huge waste of resource um and often it was uh, you know if you'd if they called I mean, maybe they would call just after the appointment time say oh sorry I couldn't make it you know if we'd called them first it might have helped so I, I mean I have not made I've not made the business case for it I don't know if it would work out in terms of cost effectiveness <laughs> but I think that would help and I think it all just comes down to the the, the it's a very apologies here if for if, 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 if I don't want to offend people's political persuasions, but it's a very Tory policy, isn't it? It's it's a it's not not a, it's not one that's designed to help those of lower so- socio economic class, which is a cent- which is what the evidence suggests is the is the population that seems to, would be most affected by this, and who are those who 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 miss appointments most because of multiple factors. But then the factors are different across different uh, um parts of society and different countries within different specialties. This requires proper rigorous study and local on the ground quality improvement um, mechanisms um, and that that work is out there if people want to want to make bring genuine change if you want to just punish the poor, then yeah keep voting Tory. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I love
2: how he turned his mic microphone off straight after that statement. <laughs> <I'm> done,
4: <Caesar. laughs> no further
0: questions <laughs> i just can't
3: believe you have a 56 percent dna rate that's
4: that's Wild. really
3: hard They are yeah. because i was going to say i i don't also buy the argument if it's like a five ten percent dna rate. i don't buy the argument like in general practice for instance that's a waste of resources it's like oh wait i've got a free appointment i can, oh, I, do, I loved it. I can <laughs> do all the
2: free yeah. paper that you're expected to do actually during paid hours that's yeah. how you have
3: like yeah, 60 exactly. publications <laughs> Just right?
2: write a quick paper yeah <laughs> <didn't get laughs> <them. laughs>
0: Sorry, no, sorry. when well, no, I uh, went to get my eyebrows done the other day, uh, a rare act of self-care. Um, and the day before, they sent me, they, the, the salon, sent me this text being like, we're really looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Um, text back one to confirm, or two if you can't make it. And I was actually thinking, I was like, if the lady that like runs her own salon, just one lady on her own, can run this little automated system where that text comes to me and presumably if i don't reply she then sends me a quick follow-up or a call to be like you're still coming surely surely nhs digital could come up with something like that for appointments you'd think
1: they do um there's 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 evidence that 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 texts texts work well phone calls work mm. even better um, um and this happens my gp does it yes yeah, so it's pretty I. good yeah
2: i mean they don't say we're really looking well, forward to seeing you which I actually think probably, probably does influence yeah. people's willingness to turn up. Um, so yeah, maybe.
1: Yeah, to, to be fair, they're, they're not, they're, they never say they're looking forward to seeing me. They're, they're never looking forward to seeing me. Very few people look they're forward not. to seeing me.
0: I can't wait to see your rash. <laughs> Uh, Well I feel like we are really getting into the the meat of things and I can't wait to move uh, move into our full topic today. Uh, We'll discuss a little bit more about this um, but first a message from our sponsor.
4: You're dedicated to taking care of others but in these uncertain times it's never been more important to take care of yourself. So who's looking out for you? For our members, the answer is medical protection. The demands placed on doctors and medical professionals have never been greater. To help our members take positive steps to better mental well-being, we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a well-being service. This includes confidential one-to-one counselling, a well-being app, podcasts, webinars, and more. We're also here to advance your skills and knowledge. And reduce your professional risk. Through our risk prevention tools and techniques we can help stop problems arising. You can access a wide range of online courses, seminars, podcasts, workshops and other CPD accredited programs. Plus at the heart of your membership is our 24-7 medico-legal advice line which you can call as many times as you like without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time for you to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at uk.
0: OK, back to the show. So, Johnny, you're the obvious person to start with here. I wanted to start by asking you, when did you join Twitter and what does your Med Twitter journey look like?
1: I don't know the actual year. I probably should know that. I think that was around 2011. Um, but I think, so Med Twitter has evolved a lot. I was thinking about this earlier and I, I didn't know what it was at first and I didn't realise I was part of this initially. Uh, I, I thought I was part of a bigger movement called f- hashtag FOMED. Um, free open access medical education which was the really the first movement with uh, within MedEd on Twitter um, and it was if you go on Life in the Fast Lane that amazing website for emergency medicine and a lot of cardio on there um, you can see uh, a little bit of information about about f- uh, free open access MedEd and I just like sharing little bits and pieces from bits I was revising for finals and um, and for and for exams. Um I joined Twitter because I'm a big football fan and I'm a massive magneto fan, which was fun back when I joined Twitter and is now not fun anymore. So but most of my twenty four thousand tweets is just me swearing at different magneto players. And I guess I've I've actually had quite a roller coaster journey with with social media. So I was first a, a big convert. I loved it. I, you know, it could do no wrong. I don't know if you guys remember Vine, um, oh, which yeah. was basically six second looping videos, which were mostly just cats. It was like a precursor to TikTok. TikTok, um, yeah. It was, it was owned by Twitter. So I set up the world's first medical education series on Vine um, called Six Second Studying, which was basically like how to percuss, you know, how to auscultate, how to phrase this question in the sexual history, etc. Oh, here's six seconds You uh, and a picture of a rash guess um you know stuff like that um and i i went around different conferences presenting this stuff and got a lot of pushback against social media a lot of stuff like oh you can't teach medicine in six seconds you can't do a degree in six seconds i'm like i'm not saying that but okay um and then it was all going well until um one day twitter shut uh, shut down vine just like that out of nowhere and um it was all to do with cash obviously nothing to do with you know, MedEd or anything like anything that I had control over. And they said that they were gonna keep all the vines and then they didn't. They lied. Um so I lost you know hours and hours and hours of work um and stuff that, you know, I spent money on this. So it was so I was really frustrated. And in fact I'd actually just submitted and had accepted a a um conference presentation uh in San Francisco, um uh, at Stanford, um about vine in MedEd. And then the next day Vine was shut down. And I was like no. Oh, oh my God, what am I going to talk about now? So I got really quite against it and um, I, I started looking into the dark side of social media and you know the whole good and evil discussion that we're having now. I started delving into the themes of that and doing a bit of research in, on social media. Um, and it was really then, uh, probably a couple of years ago, that I realized that hashtag med Twitter was a thing. Um, and I think it was the guys from the Two Medics podcast that really started kind of coining it here, at least as a community in the UK. You start seeing the same sort of celebrities... Influencer, you know, influencers on on my Twitter doing the same sort of things, and I think there is a certainly what could be described as a community of practice on there in terms of those who are vocal. I think there is a lot of people on there who are not vocal and who are just lurking, an exponential amount. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're, they're all here. Um, and uh, there are people with with burner accounts who don't share their identity. The people who do share their identity. There's all kinds of science behind all of that. Um, there's all kinds of good learning happening on med twitter um, which we could talk about um, and there's all kinds of risks and challenges so, but my personal journey was basically one that started well went badly and then i, did a, I basically i said sought it and did a master's on it uh, which i finished last year
0: i know in the intro i said force for good or force for evil and saying evil is probably a little over dramatic um you've mentioned some of the challenges associated with any social media platform and I mean there are entire documentaries and books on surveillance capitalism that obviously delve really deep into this um Declan I can see you laughing because you are one of these stealth self-professed stealth twitter users um so watching but without tweeting um have you seen anything in your short-ish career evolving as a challenge using the platform of Twitter or stealthing on the platform of meant Twitter? Um, I mean,
2: I'm, I'm pretty off Twitter now. I actually don't, I don't even stalk a huge amount now. I, I do think there are some positives from my research perspective anyway. Um... I've had people contact me for advice. I've had kind of collaborations that have, I mean, only one or two, like because I'm not very active, but collaborations that have stemmed from that. Um, But overwhelmingly, it's just a a source of frustration and exhaustion. And I think can really, really get you down in the dumps, actually, when you just look at these threads that are about how terrible being a doctor is. And I agree with most of them, don't get me wrong. Um, But it's it's it can be it can be pretty disheartening actually. Um, but yes, I think th- if used right, can be can be a, an effective way to communicate with others. Um, but I think overwhelmingly, there's a load of rubbish. I mean, I, I see quite a lot as well of pretty controversial things that are said without much evidence and said by doctors, which I think is a little bit risky as well. Um, I'm in no way an adv- advocate for the GMC, um, but. I do think there are some things where people really need to be careful about what they say just from a professional perspective, especially if they're, you know, advertising themselves as a doctor in the NHS. There's, there's some questionable things that are out there. Some pros, but many, many negatives.
0: Yeah, I was I was gonna pick up on that because that's something that I have thought a lot about when I've been thinking about, you know, Johnny, you mentioned people becoming influencers or celebrities on Med Twitter. And, you know, I could reel off a list of names. I've never met these people, but they're prolific on Med Twitter. And I guess my question is, does that erode our professional identity or actually does it give a human face for the public? you know what your immediate reaction to a doctor being an influencer in a professional capacity is
3: i've, I've something I've never considered about whether it's like the professional identity i don't know i mean I, do people still have that role think of thinking of doctors as not humans i don't i don't know I, someone like, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah they do I, I think it, it
2: depends doesn't <laughs> it um I mean, I'm very working class counselor state, they absolutely do. Like, absolutely. Um, in other parts of society, yeah. perhaps not.
3: I don't I think that's not a bad thing. The kind of the human I think it's really odd to know so much about somebody's life and them not know who you are. And that's that creates a really weird dynamic of like, I literally know like where you went for a run this morning or like what you ate for dinner last week like it's it's that's odd um and I think it's certain types of people tend to be more comfortable with sharing that sort of information about themselves and it's like a sort of certain confidence to be able to share with like a huge audience that much about your life um and I wonder if that is a bit problematic because you know if you're not so confident in your professional identity that you can then start to show the team inside then you're perhaps not going to be somebody who tweets as much or you know does that then but then I don't know what what are they gaining from it. I'm not sure. Mm.
0: I, I always think about this line in uh, Ben Goldacre's book Bad Farmer, where he says, "Dr. Jilly McKeith," or to give her her full title, <laughs> Jillie McKeith, and <laughs> <laughs> she was like the first person that I can remember sort of in. A, and she's not uh, a medical doctor. She was sort of marketing herself as a nutritionist, but. I think that that was my first exploration into this idea of sort of marketing your professional identity. And and I'm particularly interested, Johnny, in your view on this as somebody who has such keen interest in medical education, this idea that you can market yourself and sell your viewpoint or your advice about things. I mean, there is an obvious danger to that. But do you think that there's, there's a positive spin as well?
1: I, I think that breaking down the barriers between particularly senior doctors and junior doctors and medical students, is actually really powerful. And there's a lot happening which we are not actively seeing. That lurking, that observation is really important, particularly in current context and current climates. So when the pandemic hit, so the pandemic has thrown petrol over all of this phenomenon, okay, and just and just it's all accelerating. So when the, just to set the scene, in the, when the pandemic hit, medical students were taken away from from wards because they were, they were essentially said, you know, um, too high risk, et cetera. Um, so they, they had all kinds of things canceled and junior doctors had their stuff um, disrupted too like, training was massively disrupted but particularly for medical students and that meant that that their normal forays into into communities of practice wasn't happening. So what did they do? well they, they went off into their into their own little social media world so there were Facebook groups with hundreds of medical students in them and they were all learning together. And that was really powerful. There was also I went, I did a webinar for one group and there was something like 400, 500 people at it. And I was like, who are all you people all, all you guys? Like, where did you come from? Um, why are you listening to me? Um I was used to giving talks to like 10 people. So there was those things happening. But then also, what if we find is that because the these formal institutions like GMC and, and universities are so afraid of the risk associated with social media, the professionalism risk, or what they perceive to be the professionalism risk, there's a, there's a real lack of officialness on social media um, from like official influencers. So like proper guidance, pos- proper positive guidance, providing proper role modeling and mentorship. So instead we have real people, real doctors doing their thing. And obviously you get good ones and you get bad ones. But my dissertation has essentially found that medical students model their behaviours and their professional identity on good role models on social media. They, they look at consultants and registrars and um, not only do they actively like, you know, watch them and passively absorb what they're doing and think, oh, this is what I want to be. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should take on this advice. But they actively reach out to these people and they send them messages and they say, can we collaborate on this? Can we collaborate on that? You know, Declan, you just said an example of that. Medical students in particular are so forward thinking when it comes to this so i think there's a lot of positivity um, when it comes to professional identity formation on social media and people can see all these different bits and pieces happening and say well i like that i don't like that i don't like that and i like that so I, I don't think it's always that bad when you get these these idiots saying stupid stuff on social media because you know for example if said medical student who was who was calling themselves a doctor um on youtube they used to have a twitter account but then they that was it was suspended because MedTwitter would it wouldn't last five minutes on MedTwitter because uh, it's a kind of self-regulating platform. I get I get it's not perfect, uh, you know, I, and and I, I I get sick of it a lot as well. I've I've been tempted to delete so many different social media platforms, but I think from an academic point of view, there is there there is so much good for professional identity formation as well as for learning, which is a whole separate. Thing.
0: I want to go back to something that Declan said that I think was really powerful which was this idea of not having the headspace for social media because of this perpetuation of perhaps negative spirals and I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen uh, the Netflix documentary Social Dilemma, but that really opened my mind. I mean, I knew a bit about surveillance capitalism, but it opened my mind up to how the algorithm that social media platforms are based on works, which is essentially you're interested in looking at this thing or you tweeted that thing. So let's say I've had a really bad day at work and I'm like, oh God, I hate the NHS, blah, blah, blah. The algorithm then will pick up that you have maybe had a little bit of a bitch about the NHS. So now almost everything that I see when I log on to Twitter will be people moaning about the NHS. And suddenly you realise that you're sucked into this powerful cycle of ne- negativity that is amplified by the very algorithm on which that's based. And that can happen in a political sphere. It can happen in a, you know, anywhere where opinion is based. Um, and I think what you've described, Declan, is that cycle of, of you know, real like, oh, God, we really hate the NHS. I'm interested has anyone else experienced that feeling of actually you know how do we break this cycle because every time I log on it's just you know it just it doesn't feel good it makes me kind of dislike my job which is not what I want to look at
1: yeah I think this actually comes circles back to the lot of the PA stuff because I feel like we're we are there with med twitter at the minute it's like it it's it's not just a cycle I feel like it's like a toilet flushing Vortex. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah vortex that's it exactly a vortex of Uh, um, and um yeah and um you see the same themes coming up again and it's really hard to fight the algorithms and you just have to practice good social media hygiene and you know and put having have breaks try to fight addiction um, and generate follow curate your your the people you follow in a certain way as to Promote positivity as well as negativity, um, because at the minute things things aren't great out there. You know, there's a reason that there's a lot of negativity out there because pay is rubbish, conditions are terrible, and there's another bin fire every five minutes. Uh, so I think sometimes you just have to turn it off and look around, look at the real world, um, and I mean personally, I don't put any really anything personal about my personal life apart from ranting about Man United. i um, on 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 social media at all, like the the these strangers have no have no right to know about anything any, about my family life or you know real life i know that's a bit of curation of a self you know self-creation of a brand there but it's also self-protection
0: mm. i did not think that we would be getting to talk about toilets and hygiene in this discussion about <laughs> their twitter but here we are florence do you do you are you a regular twitter user do you find it a positive or a negative force in your life
3: yeah, I've got a bit of a confession to make at this point, I think. I, When we were doing the intros, I did want to say that I was a lurker because I kind of had heard that phrase before. Well, it sounds so dodgy, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> not good connotations. And I actually have it set. I, my Twitter password is something that I could never remember. And my Twitter, only, my browser only allows me on for 10, 15 minutes a day because otherwise, y- you know, you sit down to do something and then you're like, oh, wow, OK, well, that's, that's my evening gone the bit of med Twitter that I seem to have interacted on is just the people trying to be funny. Um, uh, and a little bit of the education stuff is now popping up, but in my role as a sustainability person, like climate crisis, Twitter is, it's not a, a kind of cheering place to hang out always. I guess I've, I've done what, what Johnny said about doing some social media hygiene there. Mm.
0: I want to bring two things together that, um, so Johnny, you have talked about the pandemic and which we can't have any discussion about life without talking about the pandemic it seems these days um and Declan you uh, mentioned sort of academia collaboration how Twitter can be used for that one of the things that I think is interesting and played out um, particularly during the pandemic is a real I don't know I kind of almost feel like a rage between groups of academics about what is science and what is not science and we talked about sort of political polarization that happens as a result of the algorithm that social media is based on. Do any of the rest of you feel that that's happened somewhat in academia or is this just something that's been going on for ages that social media has amplified?
2: Yeah I actually think the pandemic and academia was a really, really interesting time. I think there was some incredible positives. Like there was massive collaboration actually during during COVID. Um, like international collaborations that just developed within days. And then you had incredible research out there. Really high quality research as well. But then equally, and I guess it kind of ties in a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the influence, influences and stuff is, is misinformation. And um, how you can basically represent yourself as an academic without necessarily having the skills sufficient to develop high quality research which i think has been an incredible challenge actually for pretty much all healthcare professionals everywhere because you have patients who who are on there whether they be lurking or actively involved and the the discrimination between what's coming from you know real high quality evidence based and what's coming from to be honest even some professors that are incredibly well known in the uk some seeing some very controversial non-scientific things, um, is very difficult for people to actually be able to, to differentiate. In terms of academics fighting academics, I guess, I guess that's where I've experienced that, where there are some pretty prestigious professors who have said some very controversial things, and because they're a professor from XYZ University, which I'm you know, not going to name specifics, have really, really influenced the behaviours of the public, which you know may well have led to deaths etc so i guess in summary sorry i've seen some um real positives actually like i think that was one of the best things from the <laughs> from the pandemic was amazing international collaboration but equally those i guess there's kind of blurred lines between true scientific research and opinion dressed up as scientific evidence which i think is really really difficult for for the public and for all of us
0: mm. And I mean, I guess again, we could do a whole podcast on what is science. Um, but yeah, I guess my my question is more specifically like, are we losing nuance and grey area because of the way that we have academic discourse on social media platforms, which essentially are based on amplifying very polarized views, one one thing or the other, you know, it's this or that, rather than let's have a chat about the thing in the middle. I don't, I don't know if you've experienced that Johnny.
1: I, I agree that social media isn't, isn't really there for the nuance it's a, That's often used as an excuse oh you can't use you can't be nuanced on Twitter. Well you can. It's often you just don't want to be or you can't be bothered. I think there's a culture on social media uh, and particularly on Twitter that lends itself more towards exaggeration, and active choice just just not to care what other people think. Um, it's a bit like road rage. So you're on social media and you don't see the other person you're debating as an actual person. You see them as an account that's there to annoy you. And the assumption that we are there to have nuanced discussion to come to a constructive or a a kind of co-constructed conclusion is a fallacy. That's, you know, that doesn't really happen. It's just a free for all out there. It's a sandstorm and the cognitive load as we've talked about is immense um and there's just a lot of rage um kind of piling out there so um, i think once you accept that it's hard because science is nuanced and science requires progress and we're talking i I mean i'm assuming we're talking about traditional science scientific research here if you even get into my area which is you know quality um well that is by definition experiential and and nuanced you can't you can't just say, you know, the, some some elements within meded, for example, would argue that there are or, so, or social science that there is no single truth, uh, you know, w- within within you know certain f- uh, frames of mind. So one of the factors that makes social media so popular is that it's it's supposed to be um flattening the hierarchy or disrupting. I prefer the term disrupting the hierarchy because it isn't really flattened, and it, it sometimes inverts hierarchies as well. And I think a lot of people, if you give them the choice, uh, who would you believe? Um, About a fact, a professor with ten followers and an egg for their profile picture, (laughs) or a medical student who has got a million followers and sponsored by whatever brands. I would think a lot of people would would go for number two. Uh, In fact, I know they would, having interviewed them. And that comes down to social capital. This, I mean, if you're heavy into your social science, I would recommend people reading about Bourdieu's theory of capital. But it's a really, it's kind of heavy reading. Um, there's this idea of social capital is is that you have more points essentially um, based on certain factors um, and more influence. It's, again, coming back to influencers, based on certain social factors. And these social factors are changing. So it used to be if you used to be a you know a bearded Old white guy wearing a tweed suit in a, in a in a university chair, you know, essentially back, you know, back back in the bad old days. And we've had democratization and 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 everything, but um, now we've we've got on social media where we've got so much democratization of information and science that everyone's got an opinion, and he or she with more or they with more with more followers is potentially the most influential, which isn't necessarily always the best thing in the world
0: well we are getting to the end of this fascinating podcast episode and honestly I mean um I'm gonna get told off for running over because I could talk for another three hours about this um but I I would like you to all come up with an answer and I won't hold you to it um if social media takes over the world and we all die um but do you think that med twitter is overall A force for good or a force for evil? You would come
2: to me first, wouldn't you? Um, (laughs) I would say, personally, I think good. um, Because I think if you can disregard all of the BS that's out there, it does provide real good communication routes with people everywhere around the world. So, yeah, in my capacity as, you know, doing research, um, and my main aim is for collaboration, that I would say overall good if you can um be strict with yourself and self select what side of it you're going to um you're going to engage with
0: Flo, what do you think
3: yeah i think i'm also teetering over just to the the good side of you know the 50/50 in the middle balance um because i think it is a great as you say a great way of democratizing information and getting information out to people i've definitely learned stuff from going on twitter in an evening which i'm not expecting to do but it's just having the power to, to make sure you don't you know wait, spend a lot of time looking at videos of you know, cats jumping on things and and kind of escape the algorithm that's uh when you when you want to be doing other things which i struggle with
0: and johnny i feel like i almost don't need to ask you this question given that you've really fallen out of love with it and then you've you know had comeback season and you're back with med twitter what's your feeling on this
1: so i i love the title of this podcast because it's the i use this title as well for for a seminar that i give uh, and i give it to um i've given it to different all different populations um in terms of kind of career stage and in fact i give it to health education and kind of england leaders or gp leaders um uh, a few weeks ago um at a conference and it was absolutely wild their takes compared to the f1s honestly um, really? i'm not to, i'm not yeah i'm not allowed to talk about it um, yeah but um what my answer to this always is the same thing it's that social media isn't good or evil it just is people are good are, are are both good and evil you know people do good and evil things and social media is just a medium for that yes it manipulates our behavior in lots of different ways um, a lot of ways that are good a lot of ways are bad and what is most important is that we are vigilant we look after ourselves and we do good social media science so we undertake proper research around this phenomenon because I do think it is the, I mean from the medical point of view, it is the most important and most dangerous battleground for medical education um, for this generation and the next
0: absolutely fantastic answer to end on and genuinely when i came up with this title i did not know that you had used this title for a previous talk so (laughs) either apologies from me or like somehow that's an amazing coincidence and it's because this is such an important topic Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you for listening to Dr. Informed. That is all we have time for today. We're really keen to hear from our listeners. For ideas of future discussions and for reflections on the topics we've discussed today or in the past, please get in touch. If you'd like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with people you know. Tell your friends about it. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Dr. Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll be notified of when our next episode is up. Thank you so much, Flo, Declan, and Johnny. Until then, goodbye from us.